Our sermon text this morning is from John 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he, had, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he, was, he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to John chapter 13, John chapter 13, and we'll go ahead and pray. Father, we know that the man is blessed who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. And he, this blessed man, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in season. God, and have a leaf, unlike the leaves outside, that do not wither. And whatever he does, this blessed man, it prospers. Father, we know that this is ultimately pointing to your Son. This is fulfilled in your Son. But God, through him, we ask that you would also make it true for us. That all of our lives would be pointed towards him being built up and elevated up upon your word. God, that you would have us and our families in this church like trees firmly planted by this living water that is your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This general, Major General, was wounded in the early years of the Revolution. Revolutionary War, not the French Revolution. Fort Tonga, uh, Ticongaroga, it's hard to say, Indian name, is fell to his brilliance. And Lake Champlain, he held off the English there, tried to go into Canada, was wounded, eventually came back, that's fine. And then the Battle of Saratoga was his greatest of acts. 
He gets wounded in this battle, but he's a general. He's not the type of general that stays back and commands from the rear. He's up in front of his soldiers, leading the charge. And they win in Saratoga. And eventually the French learn about this and say, oh, you guys might have a chance. French get involved, which, without which we probably would still have dead queens on our coinage or something like that. So, this man, this major general, would go down as the greatest of heroes, perhaps, in the American Revolution in those early years. But it didn't happen. Benedict Arnold betrayed his countrymen. And by the end of the war, he was leading English troops to fight against his old troops. He was burning down towns and villages just miles away from his childhood home. A complete act of treachery and betrayal. But it's not just Benedict Arnold. This is common throughout history. Ephaltes, he showed the Persians, he's a Greek guy, showed the Persians the way around Thermopylae so they could come around and surround those 300 Spartans and kill them all. False Sextus, who wrought the deed of shame, as you remember. He sides, believe it or not, he sides with Lars Porcina, even though he's Roman, he sides with Lars Porcina in their attempt to overthrow Rome. Yeah, but Lucius Brutus, his own two sons betray him. And he stands there and watches them being executed. Then there's the, one, the other Brutus you probably know, one of the dearest friends of Julius Caesar is one of the first to draw his dagger and kill him. But what would prompt such a thing as this? What would bring you and your heart to do this? For Benedict Arnold, it had pride and greed and dissatisfaction. The perfect cord of sin being plucked in his heart. If you're honest, if you're honest with yourself, you have those same cords being plucked in your own heart, don't you? What we're going to see in our text here is the betrayal of Judas betraying Christ. But what I want you to know is that for all of us, your betrayal of Christ is far closer than you think. How are you going to see this? All right, in verse 21, you're going to see that Christ has sovereign control over all of this. Christ is one ordaining this. Christ is one ruling over this, orchestrating all of these events. That's in verse 21. Verse 22 through 26, you're going to see this prompting of betrayal at the Last Supper, the most intimate of meals that they would have together. Celebrating what God has done for and through his people. That's when the betrayal happens. And then closing out verses 27 through 30, you're going to see the darkness of sin. John closes this scene in the most harrowing of ways and he just says, and it was night. So, beloved... I say this because I love you, 
Your betrayal of Christ is far closer than you think. We're going to see God's sovereign control in all of this. You're going to see the prompting of betrayal. And then finally, we're going to see the darkness of sin. Let's recap a little bit. We're in this final week. Christ has had his triumphal entry. He's been coming in. He's created the city. He's set it up upon the hill. He's created all the rocks around the city. And with shouts of joy, the people welcome him in. But they don't know that the cross always comes before the crown. They don't know that at this point. That the cross always comes before the crown. So then with this backdrop of Passover, Christ is coming up to the last movements of his ministry on earth. And the text says, we have this, this light a little bit longer. Therefore, walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. Shortly after that, Judas walks out into the, into the darkness. For some, they will see, but others, as we learned about last week, God has their hands over the, his hand over their eyes and they cannot see. Even though Christ, Christ is doing this glorious work in front of them. They can't see it. They can't comprehend it. The living God enveloped in in flesh is doing all of these signs, but they can't see it. And Adam preached about this foot washing. Now we're in this upper room and already the devil has put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. But still, in the midst of that, Christ washes all of their feet, including Judas. Not not just merely an act of symbolic cleanliness, but of true humbling love. And as Adam preached on last week, actually. I do not speak to all of you, but to the ones who I have chosen. But it is that scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That all of this is prophesied. This is a psalm of David. Therefore, he goes on. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And now we get into our verses. Verse 21. After saying all of these things, Jesus was troubled, troubled in his spirit. And testify, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, one of you will betray me. Here you see the double working of our, of our Messiah, both his divine nature and his humanity coming forth. You see his human nature just on display before you. He's troubled in his spirit. The only way to this eternal crown of glory is through an eternity of suffering condensed down into three hours and then poured out on to our Messiah in those three hours of darkness. 
His mind is becoming fixated on this. Eternity passes. Now, coming down to these moments. And it wasn't just the... His mind and thoughts that were troubled, but the very spirit of Christ that was troubled. As he comes up and he sees, look down below his feet are opening up into the abyss of darkness. And he is troubled then with this, this churning water within his heart. They followed him and they've tried to kill him and persecute him. And he goes, ah, whatever, and walks away. But he has the judgment of God before him, as Nick was talking about during Sunday school. He has that judgment of God before him. And it's deeply troubling to his soul. So you see his human nature but also his divine nature as well. He's the one ordaining this. How can you say, one of you will betray me, unless you're actually the one orchestrating it? You can't. You can't say it with any definitive notion that you're not just kind of trying to guess what they might do. The only way you can say that is if you are the one orchestrating it and directing it to happen. So let's take a look at this Judas character. What's going on here? What I want you to see with Judas is all of this, yes, is happening, ordained by God, but he wants it as well. It's not as though he's being dragged along, kicked into hell. That's not what's happening. He wants it just as much as God is ordaining it and making it happen. He's the one. He wants this. He desires it. He's the one on Wednesday evening. This is Thursday evening in our text that previous, a night on Wednesday in Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me? Let's make a deal here. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Compare this to the temptation of Christ. Here, here's the kingdom. You can have it. No, I don't want it. Man does not, here's, some, here's some bread. You haven't eaten in 40 days. No, no, no. Man does not eat. Does not live on bread alone. But on the word of God. Judas is throwing himself into this temptation. And he's completely failing. He's the one that came up and kissed our Messiah in Gethsemane. Immediately, as the text says, he went up to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi! How pathetic, how shallow, knowing what's in your heart. Hail, Rabbi! It's all a show. And he kissed him. But, so not just that Judas wants this, it's also the plan of God. Go back a thousand years earlier in the Psalm of David, Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Well, let's just turn there. Psalm 41. Psalm 
Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. Again, the Psalms all pointing towards Christ. They're going to be applied to you, but only through Christ. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed among the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him, Christ, upon his sickbed. In his illness, you will restore him to health. The resurrection, ultimately. But then it goes on. Go down to verse 8. A wicked thing is poured out upon him. And when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This cosmic battle of, of, no, it's the serpent who's supposed to be crushed by the heel. Not God's ordained one. You don't raise up your heel against him. So this is all part of God's plan. You even see this coming out in this Last Supper, but then even after the suicide of Judas, you see this coming out with the apostles. Peter, he picks up on this as well. He goes, well, wasn't this prophesied in Acts chapter 1? For it is written in the books of Psalm, his, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another, let another take his office. Ultimately, they, by law, choose Matthias. Sorry, Justice, wasn't you. And he's replaced amongst the apostles. So you see here that Christ is in full control of all that is happening throughout the events and the troubles even within his soul. So it's not just side by side that you have the humanity and then the divinity of Christ on display. No, but rather in, in combination, in communion with one another, you see the humiliation of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the sorrow of Christ coming out. And this same instance, you have the exaltation in his divine control of Christ all being wed together. So he tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. As though they didn't really comprehend that he's saying, one whom we're eating bread with will lift their head, will lift their heel against me. So they knew of betrayal. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. He's been telling this multiple times throughout their three years together. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will, raise, he will be raised on the third day. So they knew he would be betrayed. But it's supposed to be those guys out there. They're the evil ones. But one of you, one of you will betray me? supposed to be the enemy outside, but it's actually within. Be careful, because we have the same problem. 
We always think the enemy's outside and we have no idea of the depravity within. One of you will betray me. So Christ is, again, in sovereign control. Keep this over the next six, eight months or so, as we're going to finish up the Gospel of John. Christ is not having his life taken from him. Christ is willingly laying down his life for his sheep. And by that act, he is holding them and keeping them throughout eternity. So we do not worship a Messiah who fell prey to a brilliant plan or anything like that. We worship a Messiah who humbled himself even to the point of death, even to the point of death on the cross. So now let's look, go back to the text and look at the, this revelation and the prompting of betrayal. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus whom, of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back on Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Now you're, you're able to kind of actually from these verses see how the table is situated together. So I've mentioned last week, you, what you would do is lay, all right, I'll just do it. What you're going to do is lay down on your left side, your right hand dominant. You're going to lay down on your left side, but it's, you kind of have cushions and then a table, you know, maybe 18 inches off the ground. So you're going to lay like this, all right? So if John is going to be Leaning back into the breast of Christ, you know that John is right here on the right hand. Judas, he can only go so far. So Judas is going to be, boom, right here on the left-hand side of Christ. Peter is trying to motion to John, get his attention. He's going to be right over here somewhere, probably across the table, trying to motion to John of what's happening. So remember, just as they're beginning to go into the meal... You know, from the other gospel accounts, they're having this argument amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest amongst these disciples? They're arguing. Keep in mind, they're arguing who would be the greatest of the disciples about probably 10 minutes before Christ starts washing their feet, right? They're arguing about that. John, the beloved disciple, rightly placed at the right-hand side. But what they're wondering is, who's going to be on this left-hand side? Who's going to be there? Shall it be Andrew? James? Peter? He's seen the transfiguration. No, it's that sniveling man, Judas, weaseled his way in there. So Jesus is then actually able to hand it to him, to tell him that he would be the betrayer. And he says, one of you will betray me. And they're quite puzzled. Some of them actually respond in the way they should. 
Matthew says, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Luke, they began to inquire in Mark 14. They would say, they began to be grieved. They were sorrowful and they were grieved. And they began to say to him one after another, surely not I. And then here's this interplay. You can kind of see it happening. Here's Peter, who's one who doesn't quite control himself, maybe as much as he should, going to John, the steady, loving man. He's, you could just Peter going, hey, just ask him, God. You know, just like, no, no. John, ask him, who it is? Who is it? Who is it? So then John leans back onto him. He's like, oh, fine, fine, fine. I'll ask him, I'll ask him. Leans back on Who is it? Who is it? And how does he display it? Again, through an act of love. It's the one whom I give the morsel of bread after I've dipped it. He's the one. He is the one. This is in the opening parts of the opening movements of the meal. This revelation is done through an act of kindness and fellowship. And he hands him. He doesn't even find an intermediary. He personally hands him the bread, the unleavened bread. And think again, think of this meal, symbolically representing all that they have been through as a people, that God has delivered them as a people. And at this instance, at this time, that's when you're seeking to betray Christ. When you're commemorating all of his faithfulness. It'd be like cheating on your spouse on your anniversary. When you're commemorating all of the good things that have happened over your years together. This last appeal, perhaps, to all that is human in Judas. So we've seen it. We've seen the sorrow of our Savior. And how he's in control of everything. And that this betrayer has been identified through an act of love. As though you're going to hand a ribbon to a man who's pointing a gun at you. And now we're going to see the darkness of sin. Verse 27. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at that table knew why he said this to him, which quite frankly doesn't make sense because he just said, the one who I give the food to is going to be the betrayer. But the disciples still don't get it. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, immediately he went out, and it was night. It's one of the most sobering, one of the most sobering words throughout the Gospel of John. Is that Judas takes the morsel, the bread handed to him, 
and Satan enters into him. It was to, as one of the commentator writes, it was to descend alone into the grave and with the heavy sound of a gravestone fell and closed over the mouth of the pit. That moment, that moment when Satan entered into his heart. It was set, it was done. So how do we understand this? Luke has this account as well. It's not just John. And we can say, well, it's kind of John being a little hyper-spiritual later on in life. No, Luke has this as well. First, you have to remember that Judas is not this morally neutral actor in this. He's seeking his own gain through another person's hardship. He's betraying love with sin. We go in the previous chapter. When Mary has taken a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, you should be exalting. In Mary anointing Christ for his burial. But what does Judas do? But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why this perfume? Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii a year's wage and given to the poor people? He said this not because he was concerned actually about the poor, heaven forbid, not that. Why? Well, because he was a thief. And he had the money bag, he had the money box, and he used to pilfer from it, steal from it. For his own enrichment. He was a thief. He would steal money out of the bag that was supposed to buy food for Christ. And now Satan has entered into him. And we long to have the Holy Spirit being in us and animating our lives and how we move. But now here is Judas. Has Satan entering into his heart. And he's like a puppet on strings. And whatever Satan wants him to do, he will do. But this isn't unique to Satan, to Judas. It's not. Before we are in Christ, before we have our but God moment, as Patrick Porras would call it, who do you think you're following? For years, what do we do? Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So Judas was not morally neutral, but completely corrupted. So are we, apart from Christ, dead in our sins. And just as Judas was filled by Satan, Satan came into his heart. So do we, apart from Christ, willingly follow him wherever he will take us. And then Jesus tells him, 
What you are going to do, do quickly. So Jesus, fully obedient to the Father's plan, doesn't even try to discourage or dissuade Judas. He's fully obedient. Because he knows the only way to salvation is through the cross. And John sums it up. And it was night. And the darkness outside matched the darkness of his soul. On the very night of darkness when Israel would become Egypt and kill the Messiah. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Normally, for application, we will look and say, okay, if this, if this is true, what does it look like for the Spirit of Christ to work this in my life? This week, we're just going to ask some, some questions. Judas is sitting right there. First one. Judas is sitting right there beside Christ and openly sins. Openly sins with the watchful eyes of Christ right upon him. What about you this last week? Have you sinned this last week knowing that the watchful eyes of God are upon you? Or here is Judas. At the end of his ministry. At the end of the ministry of Christ. You would expect this type of failure, this type of betrayal to happen early in the ministry. No, with Peter and with Judas, it happens at the end of the ministry of Christ. He follows Christ. He follows him. But he doesn't leave everything behind. But he does. He walks mile after mile with Christ. He sleeps in the cold with Christ. He goes hungry with Christ. But he can't let go of that greed that he just keeps pulling along and pulling along with him. And for years, what will he do? He'll go right up to the line and then come back again. right up to the line and peer down into this dark abyss and then pull back again and pull back again. Then one time, he goes up to the line. God pulls his hand of favor away and Satan pulls him right in. So let me ask you this, mature Christian. Do you have those sins in your life that perpetually bring you up to the edge? Judas, he was a thief and he was overly concerned about money. What about you? Are you overly concerned about money? Are there things for God that you're not doing because it would cost too much? We, we toy and we play with this line as though it's exhilarating, as, the, as though it's fun. No, but it's not exhilarating. We're blind if that's what we think. It's, it's hell bubbling up to earth on the other side of this line. And we think it's fun to run up to it and it's exhilarating and joyful and we play with it. Keep looking at stuff 
on your phone that you know you shouldn't be. Going up to that line again and again. You go, oh, I can stop. I can stop. Anything. No, you can't stop. That's why you're still doing it. Or you're prideful. And you go right up to that line and look over other people as though you don't fully realize you're just dirt that God has breathed into. Or you're envious. Heaven forbid God actually bless somebody. Somebody else besides you on this side of glory. Heaven forbid. We're living together before we're married. Blaspheming Christ. Making a mockery of Christ in his church. So you think it's enjoyable. You think it's enjoyable to come up to this edge. You think it's exhilarating. To come up and actually go closer to Satan to look down into the darkness. And you think it's fun. That's all the game. Don't go to the edge. A lot of people don't come back. So, have you sinned with the eyes of Christ upon you, just like Judas? Have you had, do you have these sins in your life that continually bring you up to the edge? That you don't crucify the flesh day after day, thought after thought. And perhaps you're so callous, you just go, well, I'm a mature Christian. Everybody has their little things they dabble in. That's fine. No, it's not. Finally, now the last question. Do you actively seek after Christ the way you seek after sin? You know how sin works. You don't, you don't want to overtly do it. So you'll try to orchestrate some things. Maybe somebody at work so you can just have a champ and, you know, just happen. Oh, I just happened to walk into you. Meanwhile, you've been planning for hours how you could walk into them and then have this nice conversation. Do you actually actively plan like that to commune with Christ? Do you orchestrate your day not so that you could have sin, but that you can commune with God? We need to, to cling to Christ. You need to not just tiptoe up to this line. That's not what you're going to do. You're not going to tiptoe up to this line. You're going to run to it. You're going to see it. And you're going to jump over it as quickly as you can. Don't do that. Run to Christ. Cling to him. Meet Christ at the cross day after day after day. How many examples do you need? You have them in your own life. People have turned away completely morally bankrupt. I know missionaries who share the gospel in villages that have never heard of Christ that are now the most profane God-hating people you could ever imagine. How many examples do you need? Cling to Christ. You need him not every moment, not just when you feel yourself getting up to the line. No, no, no. Don't run to the line. Rather, run to Christ and come meet him at the cross. And you will find that he is faithful. 
faithful to forgive all of our sins, even, even when we betray him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant grace that we do not deserve. God, we ask that you would deeply convict us of our sin. Let's not dabble as though hell on earth would be enjoyable in these sins. Let's not dance around them, God. Let us kill them. And that can only happen by your spirit working in us. So God, we ask that you would work in us to do that which you command us to do because we know that we cannot do it by ourselves. Dear God, we pray for every soul that's here at this church. God, that you would keep us and preserve us from the end till the end, God. Keep that line far away from us, God. Don't even let us see it on the horizon, but let us continually cling to your son, leaning back upon him as we see John doing day after day, moment after moment. God, if we have to confess sin, maybe to our spouses or to friends, God, we ask that you would give us the courage needed movement to do that within our hearts, God that we would take sin seriously and crucify it and know that it has already been killed upon the cross. Amen. Amen.